We continue our theme on encounters with Jesus. We're week four, and uh, we've said this each week. We have a saying in this church that says this, when Jesus shows up, everything changes. When Jesus shows up in our lives, everything changes. And as we were praying in preparation for this morning, we're like, God, we're looking at these stories that actually really happened in the context of the scriptures and, and during Jesus' real time when he really came to earth. And we learn from them, and we love learning from those stories. But God, we want to encounter you. We want to. Do we not? Do we not want to have that experience when, when we come face to face through the person of the Holy Spirit who reveals Jesus to us that changes everything? changes everything in our lives. And that's what we're praying for. That's what we're hoping for. And um, in this morning's encounter, we're looking at uh, a wonderful, wonderful miracle, Jesus' first miracle when he turned water into wine and uh, the encounter that really takes place or takes part between uh, Jesus and his mother, uh, Mary. To put it in context, let's try and understand before we read it, let's understand the time in which it happened and what was really going on. Uh, the purpose or meaning given to people's lives in those days wasn't what it is today. Very much today is about individuals. It's about who we are, what we do, what we achieve, and how we contribute to society. That's often the measure of a man and a woman. But in those days, very much the meaning of life or the purpose of life or that which gave you significance was, were you a good son? Were you a good wife? Were you a good mother or good father? Because so much of what we learn and what we read about there was about the context of family and marriage and how that was the bedrock of society then, as it is today still. But in those days, even more so. And so marriage was not just about two individuals coming together. It was about how it strengthened the community of which those two people were going to be a part of. The bigger, the stronger, the more numerous families were found in a town had a direct effect on the prosperity and the uh, security of that community. And so it was a big deal. Getting married in those days was a big deal. We think it's a big deal today. It was a really, really big deal then. And it wasn't just a, a one-day kind of affair. It was a week-long thing when the whole community would have come together. It would have been a celebration which would have taken uh, a lot of time over many, many days. Jesus and his disciples and his mother are attending one of these weddings. And during this time, during the festivities, sometime during it, a disaster took place. He ran out of wine. And we need to understand, too, that wine was the most significant um, component, I guess, in terms of celebrating what was actually going on. And in a shame, guilt kind or honor, shame culture, to have run out of wine was a big deal. It was a really big thing, and it would have been felt uh, by the couple for years to come. It would have been, oh, that's the couple who ran out of wine on their wedding. Oh, my goodness. And so Jesus being present at this wedding does his first miracle. We're going to read we're, uh, John chapter 2, and um, I'm going to try and read it myself, all by myself this week. I was thinking of doing voices for the various people, but um, I just not, I'm not that good. 
You, you know that I narrated well last week, but the voices, I'm just not sure. Maybe I'll try and animate slightly, but we'll see how we go. <coughs> so, we're on the third day of the wedding. Uh, it took place at Canaan in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used for the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 liters. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that, they, that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. What a miracle. Of all the miracles that we know about, the healings, the raising from the dead, the casting out of demons, this is the first. What a first. And we kind of understand, don't we, when we think about, oh yeah, Jesus, he's, he's healed that person's you know, eyesight or whatever it might be. But water into wine at a party where people have already been drinking for years I've been wrestling with this passage, like, what? what? What is this speaking of? What? Why did he do that? And this is not, by the way, a, a sermon or, or what he did in terms of advocating drunkenness. This is not me saying this, and this certainly wasn't Jesus' intention. So that's not the answer to the why. The why, the first clue of why did he do this, is what we find in the last verse. We read this, what Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs. It's the key word, is the signs through which he revealed his glory. The key word there is sign. It was a sign of things to come. And he demonstrated with many signs of his intention of what he actually had to do later through the three years after that period until the cross it was a sign of what was to come. We're going to jump ahead in the story. We're going to come back to Mary. We're going to come back to the encounter and the conversation, the narrative that took place between the two of them in a minute. But we're going to jump forwards to uh, verse 9 where we're introduced to a character who's called the master of the banquet. And the closest thing that we understand and know of the master of the banquet is the person. If you've been to a wedding and you go to a hotel reception, and it's that person that might ring the bell or might simply um, kind of get on the microphone and looks really, really dapper and says something like, please be upstanding for Mr. and Mrs. And they walk in together and you all clap. 
is the master of the banquet. It sometimes is the person who, during the speeches, again says, um, I give you the father of the bride, and everyone claps, and up they get. It's that person. It's the person who is responsible for the overall uh, way of the way the wedding is going. And the master of the banquet here, in this context, was similar, but more. Their role and responsibility was to keep the party going. It was their job to make sure everyone had a good time and everything was in place and everything was in position. And this guy doesn't even know that the wine's gone, run dry. The master of the banquet is their responsibility. He is in big trouble. Big trouble's coming his way because there's no more wine. And the point of this is, at this moment in time when Jesus turns water into wine, he becomes the true master of the banquet. He supersedes the role and the position of that person and becomes the true master of the banquet. And we're not just talking about in the context of this one wedding, but of the things to come. The banquet which will take place. So much of this event is forecasting what happens three years later and what will happen again when he comes again. This whole story is a story and is a sign and is a picture of what is to come. And he is the true master of the banquet. But Jesus came to suffer and die, right? Right. There's a huge sacrifice to come. The cross and its suffering is a means to an end. And it must be endured so that later we get to enjoy the party, the feast, the celebration, the banquet, the wedding that will take place forever and forever. But this first miracle is the first sign, but it is a foretaste of things to come. In the end, he will bring great joy forever and ever. And it's in the context of this joyous occasion that he performs his first miracle. The con- I love weddings. They're such a joyous occasion. And it's in the context here that Jesus performs his first miracle because it's a thing, that it's, the, it's a sign of things to come when there will be great joy forever and ever. Jesus makes use of six stone water jars. And did you take note of the size of them? 80 to 120 liters. They were not little jars. They were enormous great stone things which were used for cleaning, ceremonial cleaning. Ceremonial cleaning is to fulfill what the Jews um, had and were outlaid to them through the Old Testament. And much of it was about washing, physical washing of the outside, which had significance and meaning of, uh, of a cleaning or a cleansing on the inside. And what I love is so Jesus, isn't it? He fulfills an Old Testament thing in himself by performing a miracle of something of the old, bringing it into the new. And he takes these stone water jars used for cleansing and he uses them to perform this first miracle. To take the water which is used for cleansing, on, uh, using on the outside, on the inside, and turns it into wine. And the significance is absolutely startling. We come to the narrative. We come to the interaction between Jesus and Mary. And it's really, it's quite profound if we look at it. Mary says this. They have no more wine. Jesus says, woman, 
Why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Still, his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. What's going on here? Is Mary just simply saying, Jesus, make no more wine? Is it just that or is there more? Now, in our household, Chantelle comes off with similar kind of things. She's a habit of saying things to me. We're talking around the home, something along the lines of the bin needs emptied. Now, you can tell it's her because if that were my words, I would say the bin needs to be emptied because that's English. But she says the bin needs emptied. It's in speech marks right here. You know it's her. Or here's another. The kids need their tea. It was an example, but you definitely say the bins. And the last one, I'm out of wine. All the time. All the time. <laughs> she, doesn't, she doesn't do that one. Do you see the point I'm trying to make? Like, it cracks me up. The bin needs emptied. It's like, and I maturely, of course, I say, darling, do you mean that you would like me to empty the bin? Yes, <laughs> I should do it without me asking. It's even it's better. It's brilliant. We need to do the marriage course. <laughs> so I'm like, do you want me to empty the bin? Yes. Well, why don't you say, please, Paul, can you empty the bin? Stop it. <laughs> so here's, 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 I get the last word here. Shush. I actually think my response to Chantel is more polite than Jesus. So next time the bin needs emptied, my reply will be, woman, why do you involve me? <laughs> Jesus said it. <laughs> I'm dead. I'm so dead lately. <laughs> It really is abrupt and really quite rude, the response that he gives. And actually, the translation, the commentators would actually say, it is kind of slightly uncharacteristic. But the clue to the reason why he's so blunt and so direct is in the next line that he says, my hour has not yet come. And the word hour is used many, many times. Um, in fact, I think it's 14 times in John's gospel alone, not always meaning this, but many times meaning the hour in which he will die. And in this moment, his first ever miracle, he is saying to his mother, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. It, it, it isn't now that I need to die. And that is really what he's speaking about. In this moment, this celebration, he's like, why are you talking to me now? My hour has not yet come. Mary says, we've run out of wine. Jesus replies, why are you telling me this? I'm not ready to die. Regardless, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And the rest we know. Why does Jesus say these things? What is he thinking? What's on his mind? 
there's such a connection between wine and death. And we will, at the conclusion of this service, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the communion, the wine in which he demonstrated. And we will get the honor and the blessing of sharing that. Jesus can solve the problem of wine running out. He can spare the shame of the couple at this wedding. He can create joy in this short-term event. He can use ceremonial washing jars and do what he does. Yes, he's come into the world to give joy to his people, but it's going to cost him his life. It's going to cost him absolutely everything. And there's potentially more going on within the story as well. You see, so much of the scriptures talk about Jesus as the bridegroom and the church being the bride. Later on in John's gospel, Jesus' disciples, they're criticized for not fasting. And Jesus says, why should the friends of the bridegroom, that's himself, fast when the bridegroom is still with them? He's actually saying, I'm the groom. And later in Revelation, John as well writes that the angel had said to write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. In other words, at the end time, there will be a wedding feast that will trump any wedding feast ever before. He's perhaps thinking of the feast that will come in that feast that he's currently at. Does this make sense? The other thing that we learn from this is the metaphor, from the metaphor of a groom and a bride, is how Jesus thinks about us and what he thinks about us. I mentioned there, I love weddings, and I do. There's so many components or bits to the wedding that I just love so much. And one of them, uh, guys, I'm sorry if I let you down here, but uh, one of them is actually seeing the bride come. They come walk down the aisle, uh, usually with, with their dad. And I just think it's such an amazing, poignant moment, a real emotional moment. And, you know, you could be uh, a part of the church or part of the, sort of the ceremony, what's going on. You're, you're kind of sitting there and you're all dolled up and uh, they're always late. You're looking at the watch and, and suddenly, you know, um, Pasha Bell or some other fancy music comes on and you all stand up. And then there's this anticipation. You're kind of in the row and you're kind of, oh, excuse me, sorry. And you're kind of looking behind you like, oh, wow, look, look. The anticipation of the bride coming down and you're trying to get a look, but you can't quite see because everyone's got their iPhones out. And Uncle, Uncle Frank's got his massive full screen iPad and he's kind of not sure whether to do portrait or landscape. And you kind of quite, can't around see it. Oh, there she is. It's amazing. But what I love is not necessarily, oh, the dress she's wearing or whatever it might be. But I love looking at the response of the groom. Because the groom stands about here and is kind of doing the over-the-shoulder number. And, he's look, and when he sees his bride coming towards him, he, it's absolutely captivating in that moment. It's just like, oh, my goodness. You just see it in the, in the, in the guy's face and in their eyes as they come. And that is a picture. It's an analogy, isn't it, of this story of the way in which Jesus sees us, the bride, because that's who we are, totally captivated, totally loving towards us. We're coming into land. 
from the story, I love the role of the servants. Jesus tells them to fill the water jars, and he tells them to go and draw some and give it to the master. And we read this. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize, this is the master didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master didn't even know, but the servants knew. Jesus chose the servants, the people that were the least in the eyes of the world, the people who were the least at the ceremony, the banquet of the wedding. And he chooses them to be not only in on the act, but part of the act. He actually involves them. He actually asks them to be a part of the miracle by, by filling them with water. And you can just imagine, anticipate, you know, they're having a great time. They brought out, instead of the cheap plonk, they've got the really good vintage stuff. And the servants are probably ferrying, going back into the kitchen to get the... Um, the, the roast potatoes or whatever it is and coming back and they're enjoying the wine and they're, they're in on the act. They know what's happened. I just think it's such a brilliant picture of so, so like Jesus involving them. We can imagine. We don't know this because it's not in the Bible. We can imagine Jesus being amongst the guests sipping this fine wine to him, it's the cup of the coming sorrow so that we can have joy. To him, it's a bitter, sweet thing. The sweetness because of what it will bring, what it's bringing there and then. The sweetness because of what it will bring in terms of great joy for ever and ever. But the bitterness of the agony and the shame and the horror of which he is going to have to go through and endure so that we can not only be a part of the feast today as we gather around, as we share in the bread and the wine, so that today we have life in all its fullness, but tomorrow when he comes again, when we have the feast of all feasts, the wedding of all weddings. We are going to uh, partake. We're going to do communion together. And um, let's, let's, let's pray together, shall we? Jesus, thank you for all of the encounters that we read about, for all of the amazing signs and wonders and miracles in which you perform. 
thank you that for this story as the first and through it we learn of your love for us. And as we share this morning of that incredible uh, story, that incredible meal that you shared with your loved ones, we do that this morning together, your loved ones. he was betrayed he took bread and when he'd given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me this morning God we take the bread and we we eat and as we share in that we do it to remember you remember the great sacrifice you made for us. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. just going to give maybe a minute for you to talk to Jesus or listen to him if there's things that you need to confess in that moment then you go ahead and do that confess this morning we say we're sorry when we have wronged you and when we have wronged one another we ask Lord that through your sacrifice you would forgive us and Lord help us to forgive others we thank you that through this uh, feast uh, that we get to celebrate in great joy. Thank you that we are a people of joy here on earth. We thank you that your 
us, your word to us, is to have life in all its fullness. Amen. Folks, there are four places in the room, one in each corner, where you can go to whenever you are ready. If you would like to take communion, this is not, this is totally open to you and up to you. Um, I think the children should be coming down as well. It is your choice as parents whether you uh, would like your son, daughter to, to have communion or not. I would ask uh, politely and respectfully that whenever you, you've had communion that you maintain a, a a posture of worship and of uh, respect and uh, the guys will lead worship the worship guys so you can either join in and worship with them or just remain in a place of worship and not a conversation of what we're doing this afternoon would be really brilliant for us so uh, whenever you're ready now there's wine there's juice, there's a shared glass which we wipe after each time, or a shot glass if you would prefer that as well. So you can uh, choose. And there's usually gluten-free bread here. Okay. So whenever you're ready, go for it.
this morning there's many of us you need a miracle in your life right now you just need something to change and um, so right here and right now I'm going to pray for you and your own situation and just join with me if that's you you know that that's you you're just agreeing Jesus you walk the earth and you still walk the earth in us and through us we thank you that we have shared in what you have done for us thank you that you live in us Jesus we are asking you today for a miracle asking for finances to be released we're asking for relationships to be made well and made right we are speaking to cancer in the name of Jesus and speaking to it and telling it to go from the bodies of those whom we love and we know. For any other physical thing, we invite you, Jesus, to come and do the miracle. We just speak wellness restoration God we want heaven's restoration today here on earth as it is in heaven we don't want to wait until the future we are asking for heaven's resources and heaven's provision to come today here on earth we say yes Lord